0: Welcome to Maths Talk by AMSI Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. My name's Leanne McMahon. Today's podcast is brought to you by AMSI's very own series of textbooks, the M books. That stands for the International Centre for Excellence in Mathematics. The ICEM Mathematics Series develops a clear understanding of mathematical ideas and concepts for students with a range of abilities, needs, and levels of interest. The textbooks have been developed to provide a coherent and solid development of mathematics ideas to support the transition from primary to secondary school. You can find more information about the ICM books at schools.amc.org.au or click on the link in our show notes. Contact me if you want to talk about them and how you could use them in your classroom. So now, on with the podcast. Today we have a real treat for our regular listeners and new converts alike a podcast that was recorded at the end of 2019 and seems to have become yet another victim of COVID. It features former outreach officers, Helen Booth and Vicky Kennard, discussing the actual learning of mathematics. I've spoken to both Helen and Vicky about whether they stand by their observations and they were both very happy with what they said, perhaps with the modifier that they wouldn't rely as heavily on the work of Joe Bowler and use others doing similar research. There's plenty of recent activity in this area. So may I introduce Helen Booth and Vicky Kennard and Learning to Learn in Mathematics.
1: Welcome to Maths Talk by AMSEE Schools. My name is Helen Booth. I am a AMSEE Schools Outreach Officer. And today I'd like to introduce my colleague and fellow Outreach Officer, Vicky Kennard. Hello. How are you today?
2: Good, thank you.
1: We wanted to have a conversation today that's not specifically about a content area in mathematics, but more around how we learn mathematics and how we learn in general. Why do you find that this is a, an important topic? I think
2: because, especially at this time of year, when students' minds in year 11 and 12 are turning towards VCEs and other state examinations, we don't talk much about how we learn. We teach, but we don't actually equip our students for how they're going to manage in learning exams type style situations. And one of the things I found from my research is that the way in which students think is the best way of learning is not necessarily the best way to learn. So can you give me an example of this? We as teachers tend to teach in blocks. That's the way our textbooks are arranged and that's just the traditional way of doing it. So we might teach five or six weeks on a particular topic like linear equations or um, rates and ratios and then we'll move on to the next topic. It's been shown that blocking like this doesn't actually help students to retain knowledge. We're better off doing little chunks and interleaving them, mixing up the subjects a little bit. And the same comes to when we do revision, when we prepare ourselves. Students tend to cram, they tend to block their learning and then move on to another subject. And that's not that's been shown not to be the best way to retain knowledge.
1: So obviously you've done quite a bit of uh, research in, uh, into this area. In fact, your master's had a focus into this. Uh, would you like to share a little bit of your experience with what you've tried to do with students and whether it's been particularly successful?
2: So in my master's, my capstone project was on neuroscience and I became very interested in the work of Carol Dweck and Joe Bowler, particularly in mathematics. Um, not just on mindset, but on how we actually approach maths and how we learn. I did I had the opportunity to work with a group of Year 7 students um, on what's called executive function, which is organizational skills, learning skills, study skills. And when I showed them the idea of the forgetting curve, so this is when you learn something, you forget it at a certain rate. And if you keep relearning, you actually forget less and less each time. So rather than spending Two hours studying something once, if you spread out that two hours learning over the space of two weeks, you'll actually retain more of that knowledge. So I showed them this, I talked to them about this, and they all looked at me, nodded, and said, yes, but we're still going to cram the night before. It, it's a very hard concept to get across that little and often is better than staying up late and cramming for a, before a test.
1: So how would you describe that student's commonly uh, study? How do, how do they organise themselves and prepare themselves for exams, particularly, as you said, for those students who are about to go into the year 12 exams?
2: I think students tend to do their learning close to the exams because they're worried about forgetting. So rather than start their revision weeks and weeks before, they'll start close to the time of the exam. And as I said, with these forgetting curves, it's better if they start a long time before and just regularly do little bits. They'll actually remember more. I think students are very frightened that if they don't do everything the night before, they're not going to remember. And it's good for short-term memory, doing it the night before, but not for long-term memory.
1: Now, this is interesting when you talk about uh, short-term memory, because... Um, I was doing some reading uh, from some work of uh, Dr David Sousa and he talks about there being two types of short-term memory, something called immediate memory and then working memory. Uh, Do you know what the difference is between those two? So the immediate memory is literally
2: spontaneous. You'll remember something for a few seconds, 30 seconds. But if you don't feel that it's important or necessary or interesting it's just gone, lost. Working memory is what you need to hold in your mind in order to be able to complete the problem, complete the exercise. So you'll retain that knowledge for longer. But again, it's quite temporary in nature. It's not a permanent going to stay there. It's only really gonna stay there if what you're working with makes sense to you, has a meaning for you, and you can see a purpose for it. Then you'll retain that knowledge.
1: Okay, so how do how do we as teachers, we need to do as teachers to help students to make sure that they are using their working memories rather than working the immediate memory? And how do we get them to take what they have learned and what we have taught into their uh, long-term memories? That's a very good question. Um, and I think there is a lot we can
2: do that we don't do. Um, I saw a recent post on Facebook, someone asking, should I, have, should I dictate notes to students or get them to copy what I write on the board? And I think, in answer to your question, neither of those methods is going to help. Um, we need to make meaning for students. Learning has to be active. So a really good strategy, I think, is pausing in your teaching and we should never lecture our students or teach for more than 10, 15 minutes at a time because we just can't concentrate for any longer. But pausing and then getting students to reflect on what you've just done, to write it down in their own words, that's an active process. If you tell them at the beginning, when I stop, you're gonna have to write a reflection, they're gonna have to be thinking differently about what you're saying because they know they're gonna have to retain that knowledge. Getting them to actively write it down does two things. First of all, it helps them to organise their thoughts and to fix some of those ideas. And secondly, it's a great formative assessment tool to check that they've actually learnt what you've been teaching.
1: And one of the things I've always found um, is that if we can actually teach somebody what we've just learned, it's another good way to retain and and keep hold of that information.
2: Yes, definitely. Getting students to turn and talk, explain what I I, either teacher have just said to the person sitting next to you and then get them to explain it to you. It might sound like it's very repetitious, but actually that repetition is good. And if a student can re-explain the ideas they've just heard to someone else and it actually becomes understandable. That is very good. I used to say to students, if you can go home and teach a younger sibling or teach a dog what I taught you today, then that proves that you really understand it, you really know it.
1: And I, I believe the word for that uh, talking about it is called elaborate rehearsal. So you have two types of rehearsal. One is rote and one is elaborate, and um, as well as initial and secondary. And with the initial If you don't um, attach meaning to what you are learning, then it it disappears in in that 30 seconds because there's no meaning to it. So whereas you've got to have time to have that secondary rehearsal and that elaborate rehearsal because you actually have to process what you have heard and think about it in your own terms.
2: Yes. And I think that rote rehearsal, we all know students who can sing their times tables. But when we ask them a specific um, six times ten, six times seven, they actually have to sing all the way through to that point. That's the rote they can do it by rote, but they can't extract the information.
1: Yeah, so they, they can do it in sequence, but they can't actually take it out of sequence. And so there's that, that importance of making the meaning. Um, and, and so ha- what else could teachers do to help students to ensure that they are, one, making sense of it, and two, uh, making sure it has meanings when they're introducing something new?
2: making it relatable we always struggle in maths to come up with um, where am I going to use this in real life and giving context meaningful context of where they might use the mathematics that is a struggle but also relating it to things they've done in the past so again that's another idea of this interleaving not siloing us our topics so you teach algebra one day you teach equations another day you teach something else another day Mixing it up a little. So always having a little bit of what you've done previously and maybe introducing an idea that you're going to take further in the future, not just teaching one subject, one topic at a time.
1: We had an interesting conversation this morning. Uh, A a feed came up about worded worded problems, and in the office we certainly had a bit of a a conversation about that. Uh, Could you sort of elaborate a bit on that, please? Yes, so there was a question, um, I think it was a Twitter feed,
2: um, do we ever have worded problems? And we were all saying, well, surely all maths is worded problems. I mean, in, in real life, we never get a question in real life three times nine. We would only ever get that in a context. It would only ever occur in a context. So trying to put maths into a context definitely helps, definitely gives meaning.
1: And I think the the uh, problem that does happen is often the worded problems that perhaps students are presented with are very forced. Very. So therefore there becomes this concept um, in students' mind that the worded problem isn't isn't... Uh, valid either. So it's about actually finding true context rather than forced context uh, for for our worded problems. Um, Now, earlier you talked about uh, when you did your master's, you were talking about uh, the the work of uh, Joe Bowler and Carol Dweck. Can you sort of uh, add something more to that, please?
2: So that leads into the whole area of mindset, Um, and growth mindset as opposed to fixed mindset. A growth mindset is when a student or a person has a belief in their ability to learn and to develop. A fixed mindset is the idea that you are born a certain way, you will reach a certain level, and that is your level, your plateau. Where the growth mindset says no, you are always able to develop further and grow and learn more. Um, I think a lot of this work has been misunderstood and misused but it is important to develop that idea in students that they are capable and they are capable of change and grow but that happens through struggle it's not easy Um, and this matches into this idea of how we learn when we talk about struggle so just reading notes So if I'm a teacher and I've given my students the most amazing notes for my maths course, if all a student does is read that note, those notes, they are not learning. That is, as I said, learning has to be active. Just rereading notes, highlighting. I'm a great disliker of highlighting. Highlighting loads and loads of words is not learning. It's much better if you do have notes, read a small chunk, turn it over, think about what you just read, and then try and rewrite the ideas in your own words. Not rewrite it word for word, but to actually paraphrase it and write it in your own words. Again, it's an active approach to learning, and it really sees if you've retained that knowledge. You talked about the idea of we have this um, immediate working memory, which only lasts around 30 seconds. So if you read something and you immediately think, did I understand that? Yes, let's move on. Maybe you did understand it, maybe you didn't. But if you wait that 30 seconds and try and rewrite it, that's a real test to see if you understood it.
1: So that's one thing that students could do. What are some other things that students could do to improve their re- retention of the learning that they take they do?
2: Okay, there's um very interesting... Um, book by someone called Barbara Oakley called Learning How to Learn and she talks about the Pomodoro technique. So Pomodoro is Spanish for tomato. So it's based on those um, fancy kitchen timers that you can turn that look like tomatoes. So the idea there is you cannot concentrate for more than 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, 25 minutes at the absolute most. So this technique is you set a timer for 20 minutes and you work solidly for that 20 minutes, whether it's reading, whether it's rewriting, whether it's just doing a maths question, you work for 20 minutes. And then at the end of that, when the timer goes off, you give yourself a reward. So a reward can be a piece of chocolate, a walk, a drink, um, playing a game, anything. That concentrated burst of learning, if you know it's going to end, if you know it's just for that 20 minutes, you'll be much more productive in that time than if you try and sit there for an hour. It just won't work.
1: Talking about that uh, 20 minutes reminds me of the primacy-recency effect, which uh, Sousa talks about, and the fact that we tend to remember what we learn at the beginning and what we learn. And so that's the recency, uh, sorry, the primacy, the beginning of a lesson. And then we remember the most recent thing that we um, have been taught at the end. So if we have a huge long lesson, say say we have a 90 minute lesson and we spend the whole time with the teacher uh, lecturing or going through um, examples and that sort of thing, there's very little really productive learning that occurs in that lesson because once the primacy component is gone, uh, it, it, he refers to it to downtime. Where, where So the kids can end up actually with two thirds of their lesson being in downtime. Whereas if you Think about the 20 minutes. He actually identifies 20 minutes as being the prime length, again, because that's about the length of time um, adolescents and adults can actually concentrate for for between 15 and 20 minutes.
2: Yes. So it's important to break up chunks. Um, And as I said, if, if a teacher does feel they have to lecture or give examples or do something for extended periods of time, they are better by saying, OK, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. At the end, we're going to take a break. I'm going to ask you to give a reflection, give a review, and then carry on for another 20 minutes. So breaking up, chunking is also very important.
1: So what are some suggestions about how students can help retain information? Are there any tricks that teachers and students can use to help them to be able to recall information that's gone into long-term memory and bring it back out into working memory?
2: There are a few tricks. Um, Mnemonics, making up little rhymes, um, using a word and relating each letter in the word to a particular idea or thought, that sort of thing. Making it relatable, relating back to something else they've learnt. There's an idea of um, a memory palace where you attach a thought to a place in a room. So if you have a familiar room, you, oh, can, that's interesting. Yeah, you can actually attach an idea to an object in the room. So when you want to recall that information, you imagine yourself in the room and you look at the objects and each object has a meaning for you. So that's a very sophisticated technique that you can use to try and retain information.
1: That, that's, I believe, one of the ways that people who have these amazing memories for um, remembering competitions. long yeah, competitions and that, that that's how they go yes. about doing it. I
2: actually heard um, an, or read an interesting thing about a teacher who actually took his students out and they went to a different... Every time he taught a different topic, um, they finished the topic by going to a particular cafe and they went to a different cafe each time. And when they sat in the cafe, he got them to look around and he said, OK, so think about this equation and this bit of the cafe and this thing. (laughs) So when they actually came into an exam and they saw a question, whatever the topic was, they imagined themselves in that particular cafe and then they could think about the different objects and relate the ideas to that. So that's an interesting approach.
1: That sounds like a good teacher to (laughs) to have. What else can students do when it comes to uh, uh, preparing for exams? So we're coming up to the end of the year. The year 12 exams across the whole of the country will soon be on. How could students go about preparing themselves now for those exams? I think now is
2: the important thing, not leaving it to the last minute. Doing 15, 20 minutes a night of a subject and no more not always revising one whole topic before moving on to another topic, but chunking the topics into little pieces and mixing it up a little bit. Um, Especially in maths, it has to be active. So doing problems, even problems you've done before. Doing a problem, if you have struggled with it before, wait a few nights, try the problem, the identical problem again, see how you're doing with that. That's really what it's all about.
1: And you were, you were, we were talking about this earlier, and you were saying that if you do a problem and you get it wrong, rather than going back and trying to do it at that stage, you, you leave it and you go back and do it at a later date. Yeah.
2: There's um, Barbara Oakley also talks about diffuse thinking. Sometimes if you've struggled with something, and you haven't finished it, you haven't completed it. If you leave it rather than getting frustrated, just leave it. You think you've left the problem, but your mind is actually still working on it. It's those eureka moments when you're, you're in the shower and all of a sudden you remember how to do something. Your mind is constantly working on problems. So rather than struggling and struggling and getting really frustrated and upset, it's better to walk away from the problem and do something completely different. Take a walk, listen to some music, do something else, and your mind will still be working on it. So when you go back to it in a little while it actually suddenly makes more sense and is suddenly easier.
1: And that, again, would be where the Pomodoro method would come in. As you're doing that, go away. And and it also, with the primacy recency effect, they talk about after 20 minutes, you do a change of directions. You get up, you walk. So even if your lesson is 90 minutes long, you think of how you can break that lesson up and you refocus and come back and then you can have another 20 minutes of quality learning. Yes, yeah definitely. Okay, Um, any other tips you would give to teachers and students? I think sleep.
2: Sleep comes up so often. I recently listened to an excellent podcast by Mr. Barton, Mr. Barton Maths. Um, He was interviewing a neuroscientist and a psychologist, I think, and they were saying in their review of studies, they have seen that getting eight to nine hours sleep a night can actually raise grades by 15%, which is huge. And having breakfast can add a few more percentage points to that as well. So getting a good night's sleep, having a good breakfast will definitely make an improvement. And
1: I think the good breakfast is a point. It's not having um, cocoa pops. No. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's not a sugary cereal, it's a good healthy breakfast. Um, But sleep really is important and again, students who might get very anxious before an exam, might panic before an exam and feel they need to stay up all night revising are actually doing themselves more harm than good. Staying up all night revising puts things into their short term memory but they might be so tired they then can't concentrate when it comes to the actual test.
1: And that's an interesting thing, talking about that anxiety, because the other thing that often happens is if you're feeling anxious about something, your your brain is using up all this energy, thinking about how anxious you're feeling about it. And there's no space for the working memory to exist. Uh, and I can relate to this in um, a very personal way. I remember many years ago when I was doing my school certificate, I did the first exam, which was English. And I walked out of it going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail because it was too hard. And I got home and I said to my mum, you know, oh, I'm going to be a disaster. And she kicked me out of the house. And We lived on a farm and told me to go down the river and I went fishing. And I spent the afternoon instead of studying, actually went down the, the river and uh, went fishing and then came home, read through my notes for the exam the next day and walked in saying, I can do this. I I know what I need to do and I am competent at doing this. And I did and I came out with a score that was more than 20 marks higher than my English one where I'd panicked.
2: Another good technique for overcoming anxiety is actually to spend the first four or five minutes um, if you really are anxious rather than attempting to answer the questions, just write down about your anxiety. If you actually write a few lines about, I'm really anxious, I'm really worried, and get those feelings on paper, you then actually got rid of those feelings. It's been shown, if you write for a few minutes about how anxious you are, when you actually then start looking at the questions, that anxiety has left you. You've put it on paper, it's gone. So that's an interesting technique to use for those students.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, they talk a lot about uh, writing and mathematics. We, we tend to separate maths and uh, English, and we think about maths as just being about numbers. But one of the other techniques that uh, is identified as helping kids to retain their mathematics is not only talking about it, but actually writing about it. One of my biggest problems, one of my, my biggest bugbears when it comes to maths is
2: that we do Give students worksheets where they just fill in boxes with numbers. But we should be answering in sentences. Again, that's putting the maths into context and making it um, more relatable. The answer is not seven. The answer is seven boxes of eggs. We, we need to get students to write and to explain their thinking that is really important.
1: And I guess that comes back to something that we've talked about in other podcasts about the importance of what is the question that actually being asked by the mathematical equation. It's not just 12 divided by four. It's actually asking you how many fours are in 12 or 12 how many fours. So once you have a question,
0: You You can actually then,
1: yeah, and and you can say, does that make sense? Because that's the other thing that quite often happens. If kids are just learning procedure, and they've just learnt the procedure of what they're doing, they go through, but they don't actually look at the answer and go, does that actually make sense? And they'll accept things that aren't making sense or don't, you know, yes intuitively. And then when you come to mark a test
2: and you see the mistakes and you think, if only they'd read the question, they would know. But that's a whole nother podcast (laughs) on numberless problems and, and things like that.
1: Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. We've been talking today about learning how to learn with a specific focus on mathematics. If you have some thoughts or questions about today's episode or some suggestions for future episodes, why don't you get in touch with us? Just go to our webpage, calculate.org.au, click on the podcast menu tab and on the page you'll find a webmail option. You can leave some questions or feedback there. If particularly if you are interested in perhaps us exploring the neuroscience component of learning how to learn, that would be great fun. So thanks again Vicky for coming in. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it and we'll look forward to speaking again. Okay. Bye.